Hi, and welcome to another episode of Switchcast, a podcast delving into the world of film brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Fenton. I'm Daniel Lemon. And I'm Chris Edwards. It's Thursday, the 29th of March, 2018. On this week's show, Hollywood takes a significant step towards diversity in mainstream cinema with the teen film Love, Simon. We discuss its impact. Plus, we discuss the entire filmography of one Steven Allen Spielberg to celebrate the release of Ready Player One and my new article ranking each and every one of them. And as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Well, let's get straight into it with Ready Player One. Daniel grabbed his Wii remote and headed down to the cinema to catch this one. So is it on like Donkey Kong or did it end up becoming your final fantasy? Does anyone still use a Wii? Like really? Does anyone still use a Wii? I see more Wiis on the side of the road. Yes, one of my friends. I think the reference is appropriate. One of my friends still plays it, and it's very fun. Mario Kart 8. It's a really good time. (laughs) We'll go with that. It's 2045, and most of the population doesn't interact in person anymore. Instead, they spend their days inside the Oasis, a virtual world of boundless size and endless possibilities. Wade Watts, played by Ty Sheridan, has thrown himself into a quest in the Oasis to find a hidden Easter egg planted by its creator, James Halliday, played by Mark Rylance, which will give whoever finds it control over the Oasis. But the stakes of the quest may be higher than Wade first imagined. Who is this Porosible, and how the hell is he winning? Find him. This isn't just a game. I'm talking about actual life and death stuff. The Oasis, the world's most important economic resource. It's nothing less than a war for control of the future. Welcome to the rebellion, Wade. Like many of you, I only came here to escape. But I found something much bigger than just myself. Are you willing to fight? Help us save the Oasis. Adapted from Ernest Cline's novel, the script is one hell of a mess. A complicated plot and too many characters weighed down by clunky dialogue and a lacklustre love story. But in the hands of legendary director Steven Spielberg, Ready Player One becomes a thrilling visual feast, executed with the kind of giddy insanity only Spielberg could pull off. It even manages to mostly navigate its nostalgia-baiting image and turn it on its head, commenting on the dangers of turning nostalgia into a commodity. The cast, which also includes Olivia Cook, Ben Mendelsohn and Simon Pegg, all look like they're having a blast, and some of the action set pieces are amongst the most spectacular in years. In the hands of anyone else, this would have been a train wreck, especially with such a weak screenplay. But not only is it made all the better by Spielberg, he's probably the only person who could have pulled it off. Wildly entertaining, totally nuts, and wonderfully cheesy, I had such a great time diving into Ready Player One. Switch off your brain, strap in, and watch it on the biggest screen you can. Three and a half stars. Oh, Daniel, three and a half stars. Did that hurt to write? I mean, <laughs> it was actually quite hard. Yes, it was. I, I, I debated it myself. But the fact <laughs> is, like, as much as I thought from the perspective of the direction and the look of the film, I was so impressed and so pleased 
the script is just really bad. Yeah, it is. I concur with everything you just said in your review. And since I've seen it, not even a couple, many people have asked me about this film. Like everyone is keen being to see it. And I basically just sort of reiterated what you said. Like it's a mess and it's got holes and it's a bit clunky, but this is the best way I can describe it. It's a cool movie. Yeah. It is a really, really cool movie. It's cool to watch. It's cool to be a part of and let it envelop you. But obviously it has its fault. Uh, I do have to point out there is, I'm not going to spoil anything, but there is a particular sequence in the film for anyone out there listening where the movie goes into another movie and it is so cool. The way it's done. Oh, my God. I was shrieking in the the cinema. How are they doing this? It's it's (laughs) awesome. As soon as it happened, I went... Only Spielberg could do this. It's the great thing yeah. where Spielberg was very act- was very open about not wanting to put references to his own films into the film, even though in the book there are references to his films from the 80s. What I love, though, is he doesn't put references in from his own films. He puts truckloads of references from somebody else's films that he adores, and then he does the kind of worship at the altar of their work thing. Like that and the opening chase at the beginning of the film were the standout Mm. moments for me. Yeah, I was actually surprised because obviously a lot of attention is being put on, before people have seen it, on this whole nostalgia fest and all the little hidden bits and pieces and references to Spielberg films. There wasn't as much as I thought there would be. I mean, there's a big scene where everyone's avatars are in it and obviously if you are hawk-eyed, you can spot them all. But I thought Mm. it was going to be a lot more. But it's, it's good. It's good because that kind of stuff doesn't detract from the actual story. It uses it as text. So it becomes part of the texture of the Oasis as opposed to the defining factor about it, which is one of the things I was so pleased by because the nostalgia wave thing is becoming so frustrating. But this Mm. never made a point of its nostalgia. The nostalgia became intrinsic to the understanding of the plot at points, which was some of the better moments. It was just great that it was just there, that you were having moments where you went, oh, I know what that is and I know what that is. Um, can I also say just how excited I was to see Ben Mendelsohn in this film, in a Spielberg film, and but I I wanted I want him to play someone who's not the bad guy. Yeah, at least he was <laughs> having sick fun of this him time. Play the bad guy. Were you just freaked out though by Ben Mendelsohn's teeth? Because <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was very distracted. <laughs> what are you doing? Yes, yes, I was. They must have a plate across them to make them like shockingly white because his They're front like veneers kind of sticks like out. It's, it's very weird. It is, yeah. Well, you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and Ready Player One is in cinemas now. And also make sure you check out our new feature articles on the site celebrating the 50th anniversaries of two science fiction greats, the seminal classic Planet of the Apes and the greatest science fiction film of all time, Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Plus, if you can't get enough of Spielberg, we will be counting down every single one of his 31 films later in this episode, just in case you forgot. I'm going to remind you as... <laughs> Every single damn one. Everyone, all of them. Cannot wait. All right, also out today is Early Man. Jess took in this stop-motion marvel. So did the prehistoric premise leave you feeling animated? A long, 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 Long time ago, a meteor landed on Earth, apparently somewhere near Manchester, England, killing the dinosaurs but leaving man untouched. In the crater of said meteor, a lush Eden-like valley grew where its inhabitants lived peacefully until the French rolled in during the Bronze Age. Leading the charge is Lord Nuth, voiced by Tom Hiddleston, the bronze-loving soccer fanatic megalomaniac. 
When the Valley's tribe is kicked out in favour of mining, its bravest member, Doug, voiced by Eddie Redmayne, challenges Lord Nuth's champion soccer team to a match. Winner takes the Valley. There's just one problem. The tribe doesn't know how to play soccer or what it is. The edge of stone is over. Long live the edge of bronze. Now we're going to get our valley back. Let's again commence. We challenge the champions. A caveman. A caveman? What happens if you kick the ball in the goal? Then other men hug and kiss you. Oh. I'll give it a go. Oh, Mum! I'm ashamed to say I've never seen a Wallace and Gromit. Pause for gasp. <laughs> but Ardman Studios' other endeavours I know well and am a great fan and admirer. However, this latest offering left me bitterly disappointed. It's boring, unintelligent, grossly unfunny and woefully uninspired. I saw this film in a cinema full of children and even they weren't laughing, save for the occasional physical gag, like, say, a giant prehistoric duck pooping on someone. Yes, this is what counts as passable humour in the eyes of a five-year-old these days. Play animation is a long and painstaking effort. It kills me that its talents were wasted on such a lackluster screenplay and paper-thin plot. It's possible I missed the good stuff through my incessant yawning, but I'm doubtful. One and a half stars. First of all, before we get into the film... Let me have it. You've never seen <laughs> Wallace and Gromit. I've never seen a full Wallace and Gromit. I've seen like five minutes here, ten minutes there. Jess, you should go out and yes. you watch them all. Because they're wonderful. Okay. And actually, okay. that segues into my disappointment at hearing this isn't very good. Because, I mean, Ardman haven't had a strong film in a while. Yeah, the last really strong film was Wallace and Gromit Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which is one of the fucking funniest films mm-hmm. ever. Like, it's hysterically funny. But, I mean, the last ones that I remember was The Pirate's Band of Misfits, which was okay. Yeah, that's all right. It sounds like a similar thing of a concept that doesn't really work, not well thought out, and so not yeah. really going anywhere. Yeah, and it's also quite alienating because it's about soccer and I've realised that it is considered the world's game or world sport or whatever and more people than, you know, anyone play it. But I saw this in Australia with an Australian audience and I am an Australian woman and I could not have given a crap about soccer and apparently neither did anyone else in the audience. It feels like a weird combination of prehistoric earth and <laughs> soccer. Yeah, I really have to ask... Just because we have the three of you on this podcast, uh, how accurate is its representation of prehistoric Earth? (laughs) Um, From three people who were there, tell me more about the Bronze Age. (laughs) You bitch. Well, there was a lot less soccer. There was a lot less you, so it was a lot quieter. It was a beautiful time. That sounds awful. (laughs) Jess, tell us a bit about the voice cast in there. Oh, okay. So half the cast play the early men and half the cast play the French usurpers, which is really like Maisie Williams, Tom Hiddleston. So it's weird. Like I have such a crush on Tom Hiddleston and I was so excited to like hear his voice and I didn't. I hear this really weird affected French voice who's gobbling on about how smooth bronze is and rubbing it all (laughs) over his face. As for the early men cast, you've got Eddie Redmayne and Timothy Spall and Mark Williams and Miriam Margolis. One of my biggest disappointments was Richard Ayoade is a voice in this film and he has maybe five lines and half of them are oh mom 
Yeah. Also, Nick Park, the director, he voices Hognob, which is like an anthropomorphized hog. And the whole time he just sits there going, and I know this is going to sound weird, but it's like the worst hog voice ever, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think I've been I think small. that's a small list, It was list, just Jess. so, like I said in earlier, it's so uninspired. It's so uninspired. I mean, I think we've been spoilt when we were given people like Alan Tudyk who voiced a chicken in Moana oh. and he did it brilliantly because he's Alan fucking Tudyk. And because Hey Hey is an icon. And Hey Hey is an icon. And then you just get Nick Park going, oh, and like pointing at stuff with his hog hooves and you're like, oh, this is like the worst animal sidekick ever. At least, you know, the stop motion animation seems to still be protected by Leica, who seems to continuously do great films. But yeah, it sounds like Ardman's gone yeah. down the, been flushed away. Oh. Anyone? No. No. That's because no one away. saw that film, so that's fine. All right, no, okay, I'm cutting Daniel off. Anyway, Early Man is in cinemas now in Victoria and Queensland, while the rest of the country has to wait until April 12. But look out for advanced screenings this Easter weekend, and you can check out my full review at breaktheswitch.com.au. Also out today is Love, Simon. Daniel took in this landmark queer film, so was it love at first sight? Simon, played by Nick Robinson, is a typical American teenager with good friends, a loving family and a happy home. Simon has a secret, though. He's gay and the only person he can talk to about it is an anonymous email pen pal named Blue, another gay kid at his school. When Simon's secret and new friendship are threatened, though, he has to do whatever he can to protect himself and Blue. My name's Simon. I'm just like you, except I have one huge ass secret. Hey! I like your, your boots! Nobody knows I'm gay. Have you seen the new post? About the closeted gay kid at school. What? Who do you think it is? Can I call you back? Dear Blue, I'm just like you. <gasps> this was a mistake. It's nice to know there's another guy at school with the same secret. When did you first realize? It was a bunch of little things, like my first girlfriend. I think I'm falling in love with you. Wow, thank you. Be right back. Wasn't my proudest moment. I'm done living in a world where I don't get to be who I am. I deserve a great love story. And I want someone to share it with. Have you ever been in love? I think so. These last few years, it's almost like I can feel you holding your breath. No matter what, announcing who you are to the world is pretty terrifying because what if the world doesn't like you? Based on Becky Abatali's book, Love, Simon is a traditional American teen drama apart from one very significant detail. Simon is the first gay protagonist ever in an American mainstream film. And it's utterly extraordinary. Full of goofy charm, beautiful sincerity, and heartbreaking honesty, we watch Simon fall in love, fall in and out with his friends, and discover his pride in himself, all carefully crafted by director Greg Bellanti and featuring a stunning central performance from Nick Robinson. So many moments left me leaping with joy, minor miracles breathtaking in their simplicity. I utterly adored Love, Simon so, so much. 
It's a milestone, a quiet revelation, a celebration of the precious beauty of being young and queer and in love for the first time. A film that is wholly good and made for no other reason than to make the world that little bit better. For the first time, queer teens can see someone a bit more like them getting to play out his own great love story. And as fantastical as it might all be, the impact of it is no less significant. Please, please may it not be the last time. Love, Simon is an instant classic and perhaps one of the most important teen films ever made. Five stars. Now, hello, fellow gay here. Hi. <laughs> I am Chris and I am a homosexual. Hello. Hi, Chris. But we can unpack that as a part of the wondrous part of this movie. But I didn't have the same overwhelming response to this film that Daniel had. But what I want to make incredibly clear to begin with is just the fact that this film is a milestone and how wonderful that is. The fact that it is a film about a gay teen being gay and that is the entirety of the plot basically like him coming to terms with his sexuality and the terrors of the closet and the good that it has put into the world and that it has already had such a huge impact on queer teens all around the world is fantastic even though i don't think it's as strong a film as daniel does that's still incredible I had a very, very strong emotional reaction to this film, quite a, a lot more than I expected. And, like, it's not an extraordinarily well-made film. Like, it's just a really solid teen film. And it lulls you into this comfort of going, I've seen this before. And then all of a sudden something will happen where you're reminded that Simon is gay. Like, he'll come out or he'll react to seeing a guy that he thinks is cute. And the intense emotional responses I had was just the thing of going, I've never seen this before seeing like a young gay man getting the guy of his dreams but in a mainstream film like it was just like I think that a lot of my response was actually down to that yeah and we can talk about how there are potentially like more queer films in history that have been milestones in their own right and have been huge turning points in queer conversations but the fact is even just in the last 12 months even yeah even just incredibly recently but the fact that this is a romantic comedy made by a giant studio that is i say this with love but like it's kind of bland it's not an crazy out there story it's not hugely it hits every single cliche moment you would expect it to like it has you know, the drunken parties and the Christmas with the family and the high and the, mu- the high school musical and the homecoming dance and all that stuff that we're just so used to seeing. And that in itself, its familiarity is the thing that actually makes it so extraordinary. Exactly. That's what the I- fact that you're watching a story we know enacted with the protagonist being gay. And also, and I've seen it twice already, the one of the things that I'm really impressed by was the attention to detail of the experience of coming out. The fact that it removes like that Simon has a supportive family and supportive friends um, and all that he has to deal with is just the fact of this, the fear and terror of coming out. And that's probably the most beautiful thing about Nick Robinson's performance is how he captures the sense of contained loneliness. And like I read, I read an interview with him last night where he was talking about the fact that Simon is having to edit every single thing he does in his life to make sure that nobody ever realizes that he's gay and how exhausting that is. And you can see that in his performance, this kind of weariness. And that as the film starts to move towards its climax, you see the weariness start to take over him and see the weight starting to be shed. 
I think his performance is breathtaking. I mean, I don't think that it is incredibly strong plot-wise. I don't think it's strong visually. I think there's some weakness in the direction, some casting and script choices that I don't think are particularly well done. Like, I don't view it as a particularly well-made film, but it's the difference between a milestone and a film. It's a different kettle of fish entirely to review and to speak about. And I've seen some incredibly bad hot takes that treat this as like, "Mm, did the queer community even need this film right now? And it's like, well, no one, like 16 Candles came out and no one was like, oh, do the straights really need this right now? Like (laughs) we deserve a mildly boring romantic comedy, goddammit. If Catherine Heigl can build a career on it, then that some gay kids can finally see themselves on screen. I certainly liked it a lot and I I thought it was beautiful and more than anything else in the world, I love its impact. I've been following it really closely on social media and online and I think what it's doing is absolutely incredible. Unfortunately, I have to agree with Chris, I don't think it's a particularly well-made film. The two people that wrote it, um, Elizabeth Berger and Isaac Aptaker, they're actually TV writers, and which I only just found out. And now that I think about that, the film was very TV-ish. It wasn't as in-depth as I would have liked. Although it must be said, his mum, as played by Jennifer Garner, Mm. Where is her comeback? Come on. Yes. Jennifer Garner needs an Oscar by now. She needs an Oscar nomination. Where is it? This is her best performance since Juno. It deserves to go viral as much yeah. as Michael Stuhlbarg and Call Me By Your Name did because she has this monologue <laughs> that is beautiful and she delivers it with such fucking passion. And I love her. And I just, yeah, Jennifer Garner, fuck yeah. Yes, no. Like, it's, 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 it, it, yeah, it, okay. the comparison to that scene in Call Me By Your Name is completely apt. It has as big an impact on you listening to it in its simplicity in the same way of how elegant the one in Call Me By Your Name is. But hey, look, we all agree that as a film, its existence itself is what makes it so extraordinary. And my yeah. God, I hope there are more. It seems to be doing really well at the box office in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, the studio backed it as a film with a gay protagonist. Let's hope that this means we're going to see a lot more films like this in mainstream for young queer people. But the only way we can guarantee that is if you go spend your money on it, people. Come on. I've already seen it twice and I'm going to know I'm going to see it many more times. I'm going to give it as much money as I can. Exactly. I am a poor, struggling student. (laughs) I didn't even love it, but I liked it. It's lovely and I will go spend money on it because it deserves it. (laughs) Well, you can find my very long, it's very long, my full <laughs> review at makethe-switch.com.au and Love, Simon, the miracle that it is, is in cinemas now. Well, onto something completely different. Also out today is Blockers. But not. Not quite so different. Continue. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Well, Brent went in for the laughs and filed this review for us. I often worry for my future children about how embarrassing a parent I'm going to be. And I don't even want to have to try and think about what I'm going to be like when it comes time for them to uh, blossom into adulthood in all its gritty sexual glory. So it's prom night, it's the biggest night of a high schooler's life, or so we're told, and three best friends, Julie, Kayla and Sam, are out to make it a night to remember. This is where they invent a virginity-losing sex pact. Unbeknownst to the girls, their parents, Mitchell, Lisa and Hunter, discover their sex pact and set out to be the best, overbearing, protective parents they can be to stop this from happening at all costs. Oh no, our children are growing up. How terrible. 
They're planning on losing their virginity on prom night. Maybe it's not sex. They're just saying, hey, you're okay with me. You're okay with me. Maybe. No, I fucking knew it. Our girls are not thinking things through. I'm going to stop them. I'm in. Let's cockblock those motherfuckers. This is our last big night together. This pact is going to make tonight even more perfect. They're getting away. WWVDD. What would Vin Diesel do? In times of crisis, parents are known to have superhuman strength. I can do this. What the fuck? This is so messed up. Uh, did your dad try to stop you when you wanted to lose your virginity? He's too busy high-fiving me. I would do This is a really nice film. These films get made for a reason, and mostly it's for some light entertainment, but there's something that really sets blockers apart from this, and counterparts the shock and sometimes gross-out comedy with really heartwarming, beautiful moments. It's really nice to see a film about parenting with two male leads as well, and characters that are actually deeper than you would expect from a film of this calibre. I also really enjoy the sort of diversity in the friendship circle that is created. So of the girls, one is your typical American, another is half Indian American, and the third is, no spoilers here, but a bit more of a lesbian than the rest. And it's this kind of authenticity that really sets blockers apart. I'm sure Daniel will agree with me when I say that blockers has a heart as big as John Cena's hands, and that's why I'm giving it. Three and a half out of five. Yeah. And yes, it does have a heart as big as John Cena's hands and his hands are very big. I mean, he's just a very large <laughs> presence physically. I felt actually a little bit similar to the way that you guys felt um, in talking about Love, Simon. I felt a little bit about blockers in that, like, it's not the most well-made film in the world. And it, like some of the improvisational sections are a bit clunky. Um, it's directed by a woman, Kay Cannon. You can definitely tell there is a female voice in the direction. As much as it's not necessarily always the strongest, um, the emphasis on the female characters, they're a lot more well-rounded than you would expect in a film that's essentially like a Seth Rogen-style gross-out comedy. I agree. It was kind of the diversity thing that took me by surprise. The idea of empowering young women as sexual beings, how overbearing parents can get in the way of that, and the handling of a same-sex attraction relationship, but a female one, was, I thought, actually handled really well. And I didn't expect it to be. I didn't expect it to be in there at all. And I certainly didn't expect it to have a certain degree of gravity to it. So, yeah, I had a great time. I mean, it's a bit, it's not always successful, but yeah. And you get to see John Cena's butt. All right, all right. Coming in loud and hot here. I hated this movie. I truly hated this movie. I love comedies. I love gross-out comedies. I hated this movie. I felt like every single minute of this movie was struggling to be filled with content. Its plot was so weak. I thought 95% of its jokes failed due to poor execution or editing, and I'm pretty sure the cinematographer was blind and doing it with his feet. I just... <laughs> Like, no, like, I just didn't get any of it. I didn't buy any of it. I thought it was clunky as just no, none of it. I think the most this film got from me was like a <laughs> once. I don't even remember where or when. But I will agree with Daniel. I enjoyed, I thought the diversity was great and so was the coming out storyline. But other than that, like I, I give it applause for that, but didn't add anything to my enjoyment of it, which was zero. Oh. <laughs> Oh, well, the joy of <laughs> different opinions. Yay! 
Yeah, I mean, I can, I can, like, the same time I can kind of see it. Like, it's not particularly sophisticated and it's not particularly well made. But I just, I don't know. I must have been, I'm, I'm probably in a good mood. It warmed my heart. Yeah. I got to see John Cena's butt. Like, spending quality time with Brent. Well, any time with Brent is quality time. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just, it was, yeah, I, I just, I had a lot of fun. So Brent and Daniel both really loved this. Jess was maybe less inclined to see it again. But okay, so <laughs> what I don't understand is if this is the nice, heartwarming comedy that you guys are kind of making it out to be, why is that not sold in the trailer? Like to me, it just looks like another dumb parent-child physical puns movie. It just looks cheap and tacky so why is that heart missing from this trailer i think because realistically if they were to sell it for what it actually is which you can tell there was a sense of surprise in the cinema of oh that's what this is if they sold it for what it actually is i don't think people would be inclined to see it the audience they're trying to attract is the same audience they would attract with super bad or pineapple express like that's the audience they want so if they sell it for what it actually is they don't think people are going to turn up which is the complete antithesis to love simon where it's like they've gone no we know exactly what this film is. We're not going to hide what it is. We're going to sell it on the strength of that's what it is. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there are some great gross moments like, you know, John Cena chugging a beer through his butt. That's what makes me not want to watch this yeah, film. And but understandably, yeah. I mean, I hadn't wanted to see it. You know, the day that Brent and I went to see a screening was the day the South by Southwest reviews came out where the reviews were like, mm-hmm. oh, this yeah. isn't shit. And we we're like, what? We weren't ready for shit. I think it's that same reason of they're worried about diversity is great, but don't tell people it's about diversity because that will turn them off. Oh, Daniel, you've just fucked up their entire campaign. I'm sorry. (laughs) Maybe instead you should go and see another gay-themed film called Love, Simon. Please go and see that. (laughs) You may have heard of it. Well, you can make up your own mind and go see Blockers for yourself. It is in cinemas now. And you can check out Brent's full review at maketheswitch.com.au. Also out today is A Wrinkle in Time. Daniel Time travelled to the cinema to catch this one, but should we be giving this movie the time of day? I reckon our listeners have turned off by now because, like, why the fuck is Daniel talking so fucking much? (laughs) I'm so sorry, guys. I saw a lot of films recently and I'm the only one who saw most of them. Maybe I should read this review in Daniel cosplay. I'll go to a gym, I'll look in the mirror, aim my phone at it, and then I'll read out this review. (laughs) And you're going to need a cat. I have been read and it is accurate. Yes. All Chris, right. flex your acting muscles and get into it. Also, you actually want Chris to read it aloud. Do you want to give this a go? Do you want to try this? No, I, I actually just wanted to use that pun, but anyway. Jesus. All about your fucking puns. All right, let's keep oh, going. Wrinkling time. Let's that do this. Awful. Since her father disappeared four years ago, Meg, played by Storm Reed, has withdrawn from the world. Her only anchor, her eccentric younger brother, Charles Wallace, played by Derek McCabe. When three mysterious beings appear, Mrs. Witch, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Watsit, played by Oprah Winfrey, Mindy Kaling, and Reese Witherspoon, asking Meg to help find her father across the universe, she embarks on an epic journey with Charles Wallace and classmate Calvin, played by Levi Miller, to find him and stop an encroaching darkness threatening to swallow everything in its path. Where are we? We heard a cry out in the universe. Alive. We believe he is, and we're here to help you find him. We are in search of warriors. Warriors who serve the good and the light in the universe. You're kidding. Do I look like I'm kidding? A little. I'm not. Your father's trapped by an evil energy. It's too strong for our light. And the only one who can stop it is you. Be a warrior. 
Adapted from the classic children's novel, A Wrinkle in Time isn't without its faults. The screenplay is often clunky and heavy with exposition, and its undiluted earnestness could be off-putting to some, but I found it so goddamn beautiful that it hardly mattered. Director Ava DuVernay plays from the heart, and the result is a deeply felt and often gorgeous film, intent on inspiring young people to be the change for good in this world. For every shaky set piece, there's at least three stellar ones, beautifully crafted by DuVernay, taking full advantage of this much bigger canvas. The cast are all mostly great, but Storm Reed steals the film with her deep sorrow, her tenacity, and her strength. A Wrinkle in Time wears its heart on its sleeve to a fault, but this is often what makes it so powerful. For all its faults, it sings out with a beautiful message of hope for the next generation, that they can be better and do better than we have. It's a beautifully made and deeply heartfelt ode to imagination and integrity and the warrior in all of us. Four stars. Yeah, I completely agree with your review, Daniel. For all of the issues that this film had, I actually had a really good time watching it. Like, one of the biggest criticisms that the film will get and is getting is its visual effects. Like, I think the CG, there were some really nice moments, but there's so many times in this where it is just so bad. I didn't have as much of a problem with the visual effects as you did. Like, uh, particularly because, the, I guess because the moments where it worked, it really worked. Like, it really solid. But then the moments that it didn't, it just, it fell so flat on its face. And when it's trying to convince you that you're in another world, it just, ah, uh, it didn't get to me. Look, I, and I love the cast. I think the cast were really great. Everyone did a pretty decent job in it. I'm loving seeing Levi Miller go strength to strength. I think Storm Reed did a, did a pretty good job of holding the film on her shoulders. Yeah, like you had mass problems with the script in that it was very episodic like we just kind of leap from one event to the next to the next and it was uh, there wasn't really that much to tie everything together in the end it's a very loose adaptation of the book but also the book itself is very episodic and it doesn't quite solve that problem i think ava devaney does such a great job in this but i think the biggest problem is that it would have been a much better film if it just had have been less Disney. That was my See, biggest issue with it. I don't understand what people mean with that statement. I don't know what people mean by saying it's too Disney. I think in, in terms of at least live action Disney films, there's a certain look and a certain feel and a certain ideal that they have. And I feel like this stuck very closely to them. Like it still had tinges of things like Alice in Wonderland in it. It still had visual flair of that style in it. And that was the stuff which I didn't like. It had this, the storyline was kind of tainted by that same Disney style. I think as much as Eva Devaney was trying to kind of make it individual and unique, she's still using a great amount of the Disney production staff. And I think that's probably where most of the issue lies. It just didn't seem to be quite far away enough to make this a really great film. See, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I still don't. I, it's one of those comments that I've just, the, one of those criticisms of um, a lot, like people say it about Star Wars films, people say about Marvel films. Like, yes, they look, it looks a little bit, it's nowhere near as much of an assault to the point of like, to the point of a coma that Alice in Wonderland or Beauty Agreed. or Maleficent yeah. or The Jungle Book were. It's, it's much closer towards Cinderella, I thought. Yeah. But also, this is a gamble. Like, this is a this is a $100 million film based on a book that most people don't remember they've ever read with a diverse cast about the concept of empowerment and diversity. It's, I actually think it's a really weird film for Disney to do. I was really shocked to go, oh, they made this. Oh, shut up. This movie was so boring. <laughs> it was so boring and laboured and the scenes went on 
way too long, especially the one with the seer with oh, Zach yeah, Galifianakis. I didn't enjoy any of the art direction of this film. I didn't rate Storm Reid at all. I spent the entire film wondering why Levi Miller was there at all. Yeah, and he has no purpose. It's true. He has no purpose whatsoever. And I'm not going to spoil anything, <laughs> but at the end of the film, the solution that they needed was there like the entire time. And I'm not talking about like in your heart or in your soul kind of bullshit. I literally mean it was there the entire time. So I don't know what happened. The only thing I enjoyed about this film was Gugu and Bartha Raw because I think she is oh, so spectacularly man. stunning that if I look directly at her, I'm going to turn into a pillar of salt. But I hated this movie. Wow, we are not yeah. we are not seeing eye to eye this week, Jess. <laughs> no, and I will totally agree with Charlie on the whole Disney thing. It was very Disney. A wrinkle in time, more like a wrinkle in your friendship. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I actually I actually get that. Like a lot of the film, I was going. There are so many issues here, but why am I not troubled by them? It took me a little while to get my head around my response to it because I did really love it. Like, I really enjoyed it. And I was thinking about it as going, thinking, what would 12-year-old me think of this film? What would I thought of this as a kid? And I would have fucking loved it. Um, And I still really did. But I do see that it has a lot of idiosyncrasies that can either fall one way or the other. and And it's also incredibly ambitious. I think it's also, like, pushing Disney's limits to the absolute max. But, um, yeah, there are there are big problems with the film. Well, you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and A Wrinkle in Time is in cinemas now. Also out today is The Other Side of Hope. Jake saw this movie at last year's Sydney Film Festival and filed this review for us. The Other Side of Hope follows Syrian refugee Khaled, Sherwin Haji, after he emerges sooty and blackened from a pile of coal on a ship docked in Helsinki, Finland. He's been wandering all over Eastern Europe trying to find his sister, the last survivor besides himself of his Syrian family. He, of course, speaks no Finnish, so has to communicate with Finns in English. We also watch a parallel story about a gruff Finnish man, played by Sakari Kuzmanen, who leaves his wife, sells his business, and starts up a restaurant, which eventually leads him to meet Khaled. The film's extremely economic narrative means a wordless act, such as the placing of a ring on a kitchen table, can say more than a slab of dialogue. The acting is deadpan, and the actor's delivery is laconic to the bone. In terms of tone, like director Aki Kurosmaki's last film, the multiple award-winning Le Havre, this film lies securely in between tragedy and comedy, cynicism and humanism, melancholy and laughter. Kurosmaki films are known for their dry humour, but in this one the humour is dry. Three R's, three Y's, all caps, with some of the funniest moments coming from a changing menu at the worst restaurant in Helsinki. While The Other Side of Hope is bluntly moral and political in its message and agenda, It also comes across as a good piece of cinema, with poetry all of its own. Extremely timely viewing, and a welcome return for Kuro's Mackie, who is also presenting a program of his works for the Sydney Film Festival in 2018. Four stars. The Other Side of Hope is in cinemas now, and check out my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. Also out today is The Death of Stalin. Daniel, check this out at last year's British Film Festival. So, do you dictate that this one's worth checking out? Oh, dear. All right. One more from me. Let's keep going. Do we have to? (laughs) Russian dictator Joseph Stalin is dead, and no one knows who should take his place. Should it be his daft deputy, Georgi Melenkov, played by Jeffrey Tambor, or the wheezy politician Nikita Khrushchev, played by Steve Buscemi? Maybe the sadistic spymaster Lavrenti Beria, played by Simon Russell Beale? While the powers of the Soviet Union act like toddlers in a playpen arguing over their favourite toy, the fate of their people sits on a knife's edge. 
Regardless of the options, they're probably still totally screwed. Stalin's dead. He's dead. Stalin is dead! Oh my god. Our general secretary is lying in a puddle of indignity. Yeah, he's feeling unwell, clearly. I want to make a speech at my father's funeral. Um, no problem. Technically, yes, but practically. When I said no problem, what I meant was no problem. We need change. Well, let's see who can mobilize first. Oh, seems to be me. Sneaky little shit. The race has started. We need to start putting together a plan. How can you run and plot at the same time? I have no idea what is going on. I'm the peacemaker, and I'll fuck up anyone who gets in my way. Come on! Play better, you flattering fannies! Give it! Give it! Hit it! No matter what happens, I will never let any harm come to you. I may as well just shoot myself like mother. Jesus Christ, did Coco Chanel take a shit on your head? No, he did not. Stalin will be loving this. Writer and director Armando Iannucci, creator of The Thick of It and Veep, executes his most ambitious political comedy yet, a biting and preposterous satire about how on earth a dictatorship can function when the dictator isn't around anymore. You'd wonder how comedy can be mined from one of the darkest periods of the 20th century, but along with his remarkable ensemble cast, which also includes Andrea Riseborough, Michael Palin, Rupert Friend, Olga Kurienko, Paddy Considine, and many of his indelible regulars, Iannucci unleashes sheer comic anarchy that balances expertly between the ridiculous and the horrific. These man-children bicker childishly as the people they're supposed to represent are tortured, imprisoned, and killed, all as a result of a game over who has the biggest political dick. It's hard to know whether you should be screaming with laughter at it all, or gasping in horror at how immediate and disturbingly current it feels. The Death of Stalin is a mighty political satire, preposterously intelligent and totally balmy, from one of the best comic minds in the world and one of the best comic ensembles of the year. Four stars. I mean, not to ruin the trend of this episode or something, but I totally agree. <laughs> I know. Wild. What? <laughs> you and I, Chris, have now agreed twice Fuck. to a certain Holy degree. Shit. On this Just podcast. call me Reese with a spoon and you, Laura Dern, because that's wild. <laughs> Yeah, it's so good. It is heinous in the best way. Like this film is just brutal. My personal favorite is, as you mentioned, with the people they're supposed to be representing getting tortured and imprisoned and killed. This all happens on screen in the background. And because they show it in these like Aaron Sorkin-esque walk and talks, like West Wing style, like, oh, let's discuss some political machinations as we walk through these corridors. <laughs> but in the background of all those shots are just people getting thrown downstairs or getting shot in the head or just dying and being brutally tortured. And it is fantastic. Oh my God. It gives you whiplash. Oh my like God. you sit there going, I, I don't now. know how I'm supposed to feel. And then you get through the whole film and then it does that great thing that his film In The Loop did as well of having that moment where the rug is pulled out from under you at the very, very end where you're left feeling very shell-shocked. And then the even the closing titles are magnificently <laughs> dark. Just the, just the way that they leave you on in this weird kind of purgatory of I've been laughing for the last however long this film goes for and yet I feel so devastated oh yeah you need like a silkwood shower after the end of this film but it's so (laughs) fucking funny because they're so incompetent 
And also the great thing is that no one changes their accent. It's really funny hearing Nikita Khrushchev with <laughs> Steve Buscemi's high-pitched American wine. It's kind of this bizarre thing where it, it's so incongruous and yet it feels so authentic. And yet it also feels immensely current. You feel like you're watching something that is really disturbingly familiar. And that's the ambition. What movie are you talking about? I fucking hate it. Just kidding. I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, you are bad. Girl. Oh, girl. That's very good. That was great, Jess. Because I was actually like, Jess, you told us you didn't see it. And you're like, see the background. Going, I'm going to drop a bomb. I've seen it and I fucking hated it. I- and just the depth and incredible quality of its ensemble cast is incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Particularly for me. I mean, Simon Russell Beale just really. Runs away with the severed head of this film. Oh, it's such a good way to describe it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Like, he's terrifying. Oh, he's terrifying. But for me, the most pleasurable are the two actors playing Stalin's children. So, Andrea Riseborough and um, Rupert Friend. Friend. Oh, it's so great. I cannot wait to see this film again because I saw it so long ago and I just cannot wait to to give it another go. I saw it around the same time as you and then I rewatched it literally last night. Kismet. And it holds up. Oh, yeah. You just really haven't experienced Russian politics until you've seen Rupert Friend <laughs> on an ice rink screaming at some hockey players. <laughs> like, it's like Chekhov on a drunken rant. Yeah, it's Chekhov mid-aneurysm. Yeah. <laughs> Put that on the poster. Well, you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and Death of Stalin is in cinemas now. And I promise you that's the last review I have. Hey! Very good, thank you. But not the last word. Oh, mate, it's me. Like, come on. (laughs) Also out today is Paul, Apostle of Christ. In the latest Easter blockbuster, Luke, Jim Caviezel, risks his life to visit Paul, James Faulkner, who is held captive in a Roman prison under Nero's rule. Together, they struggle against a determined emperor and the frailties of the human spirit in order to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and spread their message to the world. Rome is stained with the blood of our brothers and sisters. This is what trusting God gets you. People are desperate. We're the only light left in this city. I cannot fix their faith. You can inspire their faith. You risk people looking to me before Christ. The day I heard you preach, my God, I saw Christ in you. There are men, women, children that will never meet you. There must be a handwritten account of your acts. What do you really know about these Christians? I am concerned with these documents. We've got to get these out of Rome. Think that we are plotting an escape. Write another word and I send you to whatever god you want. Luke! So, um, does anyone want to talk about this film? No. 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 Really? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Okay, let's. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, finally we have a film, and if anyone is listening to this and drinking at the same time, I'm going to play a little game. Every time I say the word gnomes, you're going to take a sip. Prepare to get smashed. Finally, Sherlock Gnomes is also in cinemas from today. The garden gnomes from Gnomeo and Juliet are back for a whole new adventure, this time in London. When they arrive in the city, they soon discover that someone is kidnapping garden gnomes. There's only one gnome to call Sherlock Gnomes. Romeo and Juliet are moving to a whole new garden. All clear. <laughs> it's not quite perfect, but it's ours. 
Think of all the adventures we're going to have. Look, there's a pool! Woohoo! I'm okay! Excuse me. Oh, Mankini, that is just. Are you done? Eight minute jacuzzi. But when their world is in danger. Julia, the gnomes, they're all gone. There's only one gnome to call. What the fertilizer? I'm Sherlock Gnomes, sworn protector of garden gnomes. Prepare for an adventure. Woo! We have to get across that river. We'll need a ship. No ship, Sherlock. This sequel to Gnomeo and Juliet features one of the best casts never seen on the big screen, including James McAvoy, <sighs> Emily Blunt, Michael Caine, Maggie Smith, Stephen Merchant, and Ozzy Osbourne, plus Johnny Depp as Sherlock Gnomes, Chiwetel Ejiofor as Watson, and Mary J. Blige as Irene Adler. Gnomes. I'm fucked up That was a good Great No, in all seriousness, I spent far too much time on this podcast talking about how much I love things So I really (laughs) am ready to crack my knuckles and go on about how much I fucking hate the existence of this film so fucking much Like that, I remember when we saw the trailer and it just deeply deeply offended us so much that we didn't want to talk about it on but air. But that's because of your deep-seated hatred of Johnny Depp. No, it's just my deep-seated <laughs> hatred for any shitty... I mean, there is a gnome in this film called Mankini. Yeah. That is enough. <laughs> I, in my life, have heard Johnny Depp in a British accent say the word Mankini and then wiggle his gnome butt. Like, just the trailer for this film makes it look so deeply, deeply, deeply offensive on a pop culture level. This is the nostalgia issue that we were all fearing with Ready Player One. This is the horseman of the apocalypse. Are you saying we're meant to be nostalgic about Nomeo and Juliet? I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it came out fucking long enough ago. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I wonder who was directed by Darren Nomanovsky. <laughs> oh, you fucking film. <laughs> I'm sorry to swear at you, but Fuck. I'm, gonna... I'm drunk. Leave me alone. We're all drunk. I'm just so disappointed it doesn't also star Nomi Watts. Uh, oh. oh, no. Please, of all the films to not see that we've talked about in this podcast, don't encourage studios by thinking this is worth their money. Exactly. Don't go to see this film. Just stay gnome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Let's move on. I am taking away everyone's sippy cups and we are moving on. (laughs) My sippy cup, no. It is time to take a look at the upcoming films in our trailer app. Let's take a look now at the newest trailer for Deadpool 2. What in the foxicle is this? My name's Cable. I'm here for the kid. What? The kid? Move or die. Kids give us a chance to be better than we used to be. He needs you. You're a lot smarter than I look. I ain't letting Cable kill this kid. But I can't do this alone. Can you speak up? It's hard to hear you with that pity dick in your mouth. We're gonna form a super duper fucking group. Need them tough, morally flexible, and young enough to carry their own franchise for 10 to 12 years. We'll be known as X-Force. Isn't that a little derivative? You're absolutely right. Now, 
Let's go get our fuck on. Oh, I would fuck this film. Thank <laughs> <Damn>. you. <laughs> I was going to say that about one of the films later. You are my nemesis, Jess. Drag him. My no- your nemesis? Okay. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. But yes, Jess, please. Okay. You should be oh, yeah. I would fuck this film hard like it was International Women's Day. I am so excited for Deadpool. I've been excited for this film. And one of the things, I've mentioned this before when mentioning Deadpool, one of the things I'm most excited about is we actually get a full proper look at Julian Dennison and the role he's going to play in Deadpool 2. And it just, it just, I, I'm getting tingles in all my naughty places. It's very happy. I give this trailer two middle fingers Ooh, up. Yes, Dennison, you. you're getting thought feelings in your, that's, mm, I'm uncomfortable. Not, no. They were Not unrelated, that. unrelated. Unrelated. <laughs> Thank God for that. We got to see Julian Dennison. The trailer is making me. Oh, right. Okay. Yes, Sorry. You. I was too busy taking a little bit. My lady parts. Please continue. Yeah. I'm looking forward to avoiding this film like the plague when it comes out, oh, eventually downloading it illegally, watching it while doing something else, <laughs> and viscerally detesting the entire conversation about, around these films. Why? What's Unpack. Not so It'll be perfectly fine. And then there'll be some people violently masturbating, calling it the second coming of fucking Christ. And or the second coming of themselves that day. Oh. All time. Like, in all fairness, like, yeah, I'll see this. It looks like fun, but I just, I don't get the overwhelming love for this, these films. You know what it is? Because it actually makes superhero films fun. And I think that is what we are sorely lacking. We've talked a lot about diversity on this podcast. It was about time that those fat, straight, white men who sit in their basements (laughs) surrounded by chandos and giant bottles of soft drink have a film that belongs to them. That taps into the <laughs> juvenile need to see tits on screen, a hot guy represent them, a breaking of the fourth wall that was not revolutionary at the time, and to have all of their nerdgasms satisfied. I say this as someone who actually really enjoyed Deadpool, yes. but I do actually, I'm with yes. Jess, I'm actually quite excited about the film, but I also agree with Chris. Well, the amount of um, worship that f- this the first film got and the second will inevitably be. I mean, regardless, this film could be a fucking steaming turd, but that contingency of audience will still love it. It's built for them. It's better than them, I think. I really enjoyed the first one. But, yeah, I think that's the reason, Chris, is that, I mean, Jess, whenever Jess talks about it, she talks about it from a film perspective and how much she enjoyed it and all that she can identify all of the reasons why she why she enjoys it. What? She talked about fucking yes, this but, film. No, I'm not talking about this time. I'm talking about all the other times she talks about Deadpool. Well, you too can masturbate furiously when Deadpool 2 hits cinemas. It'll be in Australian cinemas from the 17th of May. All right, now let's take a look at Can You Ever Forgive Me? recently found this delightful signed letter. Fanny Bryce, one of my favorites. I could give you 75. Oh. I could give more for better content. It's a bit bland is all. Yeah, I can definitely get a lot more for this one. I mean, the PS makes it priceless. 
quite by accident, I find myself in a rather criminal position. What criminal activity could possibly involve you, except a crime of fashion, of course? I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. I love his writing. Particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit. <laughs> this is quite something. He's a wonderful. I thought so, too. Name your price. You were looking at one month's rent. What are we gonna do? Gamble, shop, drink. <laughs> Mrs. Israel, I have a couple of questions regarding the last letter I purchased. Uh -oh. What seems to be the problem? And now Chris gets to talk about Hi, a new indie from a female director with a female lead and based on an intriguing story of a real life female. Uh, yeah, I'm really going from cliche to cliche. Uh, but this looks really interesting. Director Marielle Heller debuted with Diary of a Teenage Girl a few years ago, which I saw at the Melbourne International Film Festival. And it was a really like interesting, fascinating debut feature. And I've been really looking forward to whatever she came up with next. So yeah, I'm really excited for this. I'm excited to see what she brings us next. And I'm looking forward to seeing Melissa McCarthy in a serious role or more of a serious role. I this is she... like, yeah, actually going to be showing off her acting chops, which is supremely exciting. As much as it does look like it does have humorous moments to it, it is also, you know, set as a, as a drama as much as anything else. And based, as you say, on this real life character of Lee Israel, this does look quite funny, but it also seems seems like it's one of the most interesting things that Melissa McCarthy has done in a long time. Um, can I just say one of the most interesting things about this film is that this role was originally supposed to be played by Julianne Moore. Oh, what? Really? And she ended up having to step back from it and it went to Melissa McCarthy. And obviously these two women are worlds apart. And I just find that so fascinating that when Julianne Moore dropped out, they went to Melissa McCarthy. And people forget Melissa McCarthy is an Academy Award nominee. This might get her another one, if not the award itself. Yeah. Yeah, she got the rare comedy nomination for Bridesmaids, which was fucking fantastic. Just mm -hmm. the mere fact that it actually got recognised because it was one of the best performances of that year. So it's really intriguing to see if this could go all the way and get her back into the Academy's good graces. Looks great. Can't wait. <laughs> Daniel, why the fuck are you talking again? Cut that out of this episode, oh, you Charlie. Can't, you can't He's help spoken yourself. enough. Jess and I are here trying to have a nice conversation without Daniel for one fucking second. <laughs> All right, finally, let's take a look at the first trailer for Under the Silver Lake. Come on in. I saw you spying on me earlier. No, I wasn't. See you tomorrow? Good. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages, from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're gonna find a hidden message in a pop song? Um, 
why do we assume that all of this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful, communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? A little. So I don't have a fucking clue what this film is about, but I dig it. I'm yes. like totally behind this. Like it's on top of the fact of like it's a very well made trailer, which is no surprise because it's from mm. the studio it's being released by A twenty four, yeah, and the um, which obviously we all yes. love. And it's a like it's a really well cut trailer. It doesn't really give you a lot in terms of the story, but it gives you so many details that are so incongruous that it intrigues you. But the biggest reason why I am excited about this is the fact that it's from David Robert Mitchell, and it's mm-hmm. his follow up to his film It Follows which is one of the more interesting horror films of the past five or six years. I don't think it's necessarily- Is that the one about a sexually transmitted yeah. demon? Yeah, the one, yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. Which is in terms of a film, its execution was kind of what was so extraordinary about the film, not necessarily the film itself. So I'm really intrigued to see what a second film from him will be like. And it looks like he's got a much bigger canvas to play with this film. Just from the trailer, it looks fabulous. And it looks completely yeah. different. Yeah, that's what surprised me most of all, the fact that it just is like, it seems to be yeah. worlds apart. And that excites me to no end as well. I'm loving Andrew Garfield. Yeah, he looks, yeah. And I can't say I've the, said that for a while, but yeah, he looks actually like he's really... What? On, like, is that a dog barking? This this looks like something that could actually get people talking about his performance in a serious way. Just from the trailer, this film looks like Inherent Vice and Mulholland Drive got high, really high, and fucked and had a baby that itself was high. That's what it looked like. No, no, no can I say? A couple of years ago, a really bad John Green adaptation of his book Paper Towns was made. And it's like the same story, only this is going to be awesome and Paper Towns was just fucking awful. I love that. There's another film that was exactly the same, but this is going to be great. Yeah, Paper Towns is terrible. But this, yeah, this, so this is, is David great. Lynch adapting right. John Green. <laughs> oh, my God. This is Paul Thomas I'm Anderson adopting I'm into it. David Lynch John and Paul Green. Thomas Anderson getting together, getting high and adapted, adapting a John Green novel. Yay. Yeah. No, look, it's. I'm just super excited to see this kind of film, which is like it's something which kind of fucks with your mind as you're watching it. Just the, the trailer and the premise alone has me more excited about a film than I have been in a sincerely long time. So, yes, ring on this film. A24 started out by having a lot of these really great high concept, not science fiction films, but, you know, unusual films. And it's actually been a little... Yeah, it's been a little while since we've had a good one from them. The last one that I remember them releasing was It Comes at Night, which was formally interesting, but kind of a bit lackluster. So hopefully they've hit upon something with this one. Yeah, also just looking at their lineup for the year, it's pretty exciting. Mm. Like between this, the Tony Collette horror movie Hereditary, which is mm-hmm. apparently oh, like yeah. amazing yep. and incredible. Yep. Um, Bo Burnham's debut feature, Eighth Grade. Uh, mm-hmm. Andrew Haig's follow-up to 45 Years and Weekend and Looking, Lean on Pete. Oh, yep. Cannot wait. Cannot yeah, it's, wait. It's going to be a busy year for A24, that's for sure. So we have a lot to look forward to. Mm. So you can check out all those trailers and more by heading to youtube.com forward slash make the switch AU. Now, if you've been checking in with the website over the past week, then you may have had a chance to read my mildly gigantic, brand spanking new ranking of the entire filmography of one Steven Spielberg. Now, in order to gird my loins in the lead up to the release of Ready Player One, I've spent the past six months working on this retrospective, going through all of old Spieldog's 
31 films in chronological order, because in case you haven't realized by now, I am a giant nerd. (laughs) That's right, kids. It is a wondrous day here in Switchland now that this behemoth is up and out there and out in the world and absolutely incontrovertibly and inarguably definitive and correct, and no one has had a single issue with it at all. So. Let's open it up to the team. First of all, tell me how much you fucking loved my article, you fucking dickheads. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wait, Chris wrote an article? I, I didn't see it. Yeah, it's <laughs> long <laughs> and it's winding and it's really hard uh, to find. I wouldn't be bothered. I'm smiling and laughing, but Can't tears are streaming down my face. Can't be bothered. In all seriousness, Chris, actually, <laughs> it is a really good read. Like, it's Stop like, it. I really enjoy it. I really, I was reading it on the toilet. It was, I was there for a while because I was <laughs> in reading this article. I'm so glad I was there with you wow. for that. How are the hemorrhoids, Daniel? I'm not answering that question. Spielberg ranked is toilet material, Daniel. <laughs> there you go. It's long enough. I'd wipe my ass with that shit. Hey, Daniel, would you say that the article flowed nicely? <laughs> I just took a drink from my drink bottle and I nearly spat it everywhere. I think you mean your sippy cup. My sippy cup, yes. Can we get back onto the topic? Chris, great article. I really really love the the topic that got so closely associated with my new article was shit. It feels (laughs) fitting. Really feels good. Thanks, Jess. Uh, One question. What did you notice in watching all of his films chronologically. Was there any like big thing you noticed? I mean, I've never done this before with a director. So the interesting thing was like very clearly being able to chart his progression and development as an artist and as the filmmaker that he would become and seeing these like little markers along the way. Like you have Sugarland Express as his first like feature film released in the US and it's played at Khan. It's his only film to play at Khan. fun fact. And you see him kind of developing this voice and developing this visual language. And then that comes to huge fruition with Jaws, which was only his second full length feature film, which is just ludicrous. And you see his style like develop from there. You see the lead up to Schindler's List happen over like about a decade or so between The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun as he experiments with finding a more serious tone and tackling these like huge historical epics in this interesting spectacle based way from his other like Indiana Jones blockbusters. And then you see him morph into this second half of his career where it's more adult and he's doing the Hollywood adult dramas that don't get made anymore that were happening in like the 40s and 50s and they're about good people being good and trying to do good in the world unless it's fucking Munich, which is incredible for a very different reason. So what were the top three? Well, we're going to go around and say our top three or favourite Spielberg films and I could tell you my top three Spielberg films, or you could get off your lazy fucking ass and go read my incredible (laughs) journalistic achievement (laughs) on the website. So I thought instead I'd talk about three kind of little unexpected gems that I stumbled across over the course of this undertaking. And I thought I'd pick three of what I think are his weirdest films, because 
Spielberg is this guy who you can kind of look to and be like, oh yeah, Spielberg movie is this. But then I think there are these three films which are just so odd and exciting in their own different ways. And I thought I'd start off with AI artificial intelligence, which I think is hugely underrated and gets a bad rap because it's slow and kind of boring and methodical at times, but all to an incredible purpose and has some spectacular performances and visuals and really kind of takes his entire filmography and like curdles his most recognizable tropes and images and obsessions in this really interesting way. And then there's War of the Worlds, which I know one person on this podcast viscerally hates, but I'm still going to talk about it. David Wong's fucking magnificent. Yeah, you'd say that about literally every Spielberg film, Daniel. But anyway, uh, World of Worlds is like one of the most (laughs) fascinating examples of post 9-11 filmmaking and the way that Spielberg uses these visual markers from such a collective atrocity is just really intriguing in kind of fucked up ways, but it's this big, huge blockbuster with Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning at the same time. So it's very odd and entertaining and fantastic. And then I thought I'd finish off with the fucking weirdest film of all. It's not a good film. It's not, but it is always, and it's weird and bonkers and fascinating and you have to try and seek it out and find it and watch it and if you understand it and get anything out of it please talk to me because I want to know what is happening it is Richard Dreyfuss as a hotshot pilot who dies and then comes back as a ghost to wingman his widow thanks to Audrey Hepburn as death slash god it's fucking insane and it's also like a screwball comedy and also like a airplane action movie and also like a romantic drama and also has holly hunter giving a really good performance it's very confusing spielberg he's wild daniel what have you got okay i would say the three i would pick as his three best films would probably be schindler's list E.T. and Jurassic Park. Solid. Um, I won't go into detail on each of them. Why? I think Schindler's List might actually be the best film ever made, I think. But I actually want to comment on something that you wrote in your article around Mm E.T. about the last 12 minutes of E.T. I honestly think it's the most perfect 12 minutes of film ever. It's as if you watch a film where every single element of it just clicks perfectly into place and when i was in in the states i was on a plane um a very long plane trip and one of the possible things to watch was a documentary about film scores and they played a little section from the last 12 minutes of et and i was a sobbing mess it's just so overwhelmingly perfect the use of john williams score the cinematography the editing the performances everything i just think there is no better sequence in the history of film than the NVT. I was very glad to see you write that because it was nice to see someone else thinking similarly about how powerful and immense that sequence is. You're welcome. (laughs) Jess, what do you think? Yes. Okay, my top three uh, definitely have a nostalgic factor. Um, They're all from my childhood and I've watched each and every one of these films like well into the double digits. First, I'm going to say The Colour Purple. I know that a lot of people don't usually associate this with as a typical Spielberg film because of how he came to be involved in the film, but I still think it's brilliant. I think obviously of its time it was a white Jewish man directing a film about black people and slavery and abuse and that was very interesting and it also gave us Oprah Winfrey and her Oscar nomination. But I think it is a spectacularly beautiful film and I love every single second of it and the music and everything. 
Um, secondly is Hook. Oh, Again, no. not a favourite among critics when it comes <laughs> oh, to Spielberg yes. films. But I've been watching this. I've been watching oh, this film probably no. I probably see it like once a year since I was a child, since it came out in 1991. And I adore this film. When Robin Williams tragically passed a few years ago, this was the film I turned to um, oh, in my bereavement no. and the uh, loss of the great Robin Williams. Shut up, Chris. And uh, lastly, I'm going with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Out of the trilogy, yes, there are only three Indiana Jones films. Uh, the Last Crusade is the third one and it is the best one. It gave us Sean Connery as Indiana Jones's dad and I think it is one of the funnest, best, well-made action-adventure films ever and I adore it. Go sit down, Chris. It's okay. Anyway, Charlie, what are you? What have you got? What do you think about Steven Spielberg? Full disclosure: Hook was number thirty of thirty-one on Chris's list, so yeah, it didn't have like quite a <laughs> solid place in his heart. But anyway, I don't care. <laughs> Even I have nostalgia for that film, and I don't think it's very good either. <laughs> yeah. But. I double up with quite a few with Daniel. Um, I think we hit the same uh, mark with films like Jurassic Park and E.T. And yes, E.T. is one of those films that I remember from my childhood. Uh, It's actually listed on the website in my profile as one of the films that I first remember seeing ever. So yeah, it, it it has had a huge impact on me. Jurassic Park, just for the utter spectacle that it is the way that that film comes together and you know with the technology especially that they had at the time the way that they were able to make that as realistic as they did is just phenomenal and the fact that you can be utterly terrified by a pg film is wonderful um and i'm going to throw a really abstract one into the mix uh, chris and i kind of discussed this a little bit earlier while he was putting the article together but i do love tintin um you know as great as things like shitless list are Yay. as great as things like catch me if you can are i can't go past a great animated film like this and this is really one of the most exceptional ones that is out there because it has such high It is just so stunningly directed. As Chris rightfully mentions in the article, there is a chase sequence which just runs for, I don't know what, like 10 minutes? It just keeps going, which Mm. is one continuous shot. And it is probably one of the most phenomenal pieces of animated art that you will ever see. You can just hear Spielberg giggling with glee the whole time. That is what I'm doing. (laughs) I I don't have to worry about a camera. I do whatever I want. He's having so much fucking fun with this film and you can just feel it. So, yeah, that to me gets brownie points. So, yeah, Tintin. And he has said in the last few days, he said there is the sequel is coming. I'm so excited. I mean, production-wise, it'll be like 20 years away, but anyway. Well, there you have it. Steven Spielberg, for all the jokes that we've made, these are, for the most part, almost all good to great films. Really, writing the article actually got very difficult when it got to, like, number 20 or so because it was just me finding new ways of saying, this is a good film, (laughs) until it got to the top three where it got even more difficult. Well, top seven, really, because it was me finding different ways to say, this film is a masterpiece. So, for all that we've spoken about rankings and all the article goes into ranking these films against each other, they are fantastic. And if you have different rankings, if you have different opinions, if you have a favourite Spielberg film, let us know. Comment, send an email, write a review, let us know what you think, because I want to hear from you guys. We have some great giveaways up for grabs this week. To kick things off, we're giving you the chance to win one of five double passes to see you walking out in cinemas. The film tracks 14-year-old David's annual visit to rural Montana to see his brooding off-the-grid father, Cal. 
Not long after the pair ascend into the wilderness on a hunting trip, the pair are disrupted by a chance encounter with a grizzly bear, and the wounded cow realises they must both rely on David's strength and resilience to survive. Have You Seen The Listers is also heading to cinemas, and we're giving you the chance to win one of ten double passes. A candid and personal insight into the rise of world-renowned street artist Anthony Lister, we watch as he challenges conservative Australia whilst battling his own demons. While the complexities of hype, fame, and contradictions of the art world are present, at its heart, this is a story about family and fatherhood. Finally, we're also giving you the chance to win one of five copies of the animated Academy Award-nominated Ferdinand on Blu-ray. From the creators of Ice Age and Rio comes the most lovable family comedy. Ferdinand, voiced by John Cena, is a giant bull with a big heart. After being mistaken for a dangerous beast and torn from his home, he rallies a misfit team of friends for the ultimate adventure to return to his family. For your chance to win this and all our prizes, grab the bull by the horns and head to maketheswitch.com.au forward slash comps now. And before we go, we'd like to offer you some cinematic inspiration with each of us suggesting one film that you should see this week and why. For me, I'm going to kind of piggyback off our conversation earlier, talking about early man and talking about stop motion animation and talking about Leica and how fantastic a production company they are. And I'm going to go with one of their films, which I think is utterly utterly underrated um it does not receive anywhere near the amount of attention and respect that it deserves and that is paranorman <laughs> basically it's about this small boy uh it's voiced by australian cody schmidt mcphee and he is able to see the dead and uh, basically this makes him a giant freak in his town everybody hates him but then there's this giant mishap and the dead start to rise and he's basically the only one who can save the day i'm boiling this down to a really poor synopsis but it's also like amazingly heartwarming it's a great story about underdogs as well as kids with bullying and things like that it is very funny it is very dark and it is actually quite scary for a children's film i would say like i I genuinely think it's it's quite freaky in parts it is beautifully directed um the cinematography in it is absolutely amazing and that's a Maybe a weird thing to say for a stop motion animation, but honestly, the the lighting and sets that they have for this is just spectacular. And it's it's funny as all hell and it's heartwarming as all hell. So, yeah, I love Paranorman. No, it's I fully agree. Paranorman is like so delightful and I just don't think it got enough due back in its day. So seek it out, compadres. Yeah. All right, Jess, it is your turn. What are you choosing for us this week? <clears throat> I'm going to cheat. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Yes. It's not the upcoming <laughs> sequel of William Kate, is it? Uh, not yet. It is not. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a TV series. It's been going since 1994. It has 264 episodes, 22 seasons, and it is still going. And it is called Inside the Actors Studio. Oh. It is uh, hosted by a man called James Lipton. And don't let the name fool you, who actually interviews filmmakers as well, including Senor Spielbergel. <laughs> I love this television show. It's just a man and an actor or a filmmaker on stage in front of students at the Tisch School in New York. And James Lipton starts every single episode by saying, where were you born? And obviously that leads into your uh, childhood and your parents' influence on these people's lives. And they talk about how they approach their craft. And he tends to go through almost, depending on the person, every single one of their roles and talks to them about how they approach the role and what they got from it. And then at the end of each episode, there is a questionnaire and then the students get to ask questions. 
I love this show. I think it's an incredible insight into who these people are, not just as artists, but who they are as a human being. I think it's great that it's a learning platform for students. So it's um, it's great for anyone who is studying or who just feels that they're a fan of films to watch. Um, I also love the fact that so many students that have passed through Tish since 1994, a lot of them are actors now, including Bradley Cooper. And if you go back far enough, you can actually see episodes where they, as like people in their early 20s, actually ask these questions to their idols at the time, like Robert De Niro. And um, it's a really fascinating show and I absolutely love it. And I tend to devour every episode I can get my hands on. So yeah, inside the actor's studio. Cannot condone your choice, Jess. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> I can. Of course not. Such a stickler for That's the That's a rules. good one. I like it. Hey. Okay, Daniel, what have you got for us this week? I actually had a film and now I've decided to change my mind and go with something a little bit more appropriate for what we've discussed in the program. As a kind of follow-on from Chris's massive article on Spielberg, I'm actually going to suggest the documentary about him. Yes. That came out last year, um, directed by Susan yes. Lacey. I'm very fond of this documentary because it was also the means by which I got to see Spielberg in real life. And let me tell you, to look at a god is very difficult because I had a bit of a nervous breakdown seeing him in real life. Jesus Christ. Yes. But basically, Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful overview of Spielberg's career, but not necessarily the technical side of his work, but the personal side of his work. So, it goes through his growing up, his relationship, his very complicated relationship with his parents, and how that has affected every film he's made since, including Ready Player One. You can't not look. Once you watch this documentary, you can't not look at Spielberg's work and not see the continual reference to the relationships between fathers and sons. Everybody who you could think of that's been involved in a Spielberg film that's still alive is mentioned or interviewed for the documentary. It's also quite significant in that that it is the only filmic reference to how he made Schindler's List. There's no making of a documentary about Schindler's List. He's never had any special features on either the DVD or Blu-ray release about how it was made or the experience of making it. But there's a large section of this documentary devoted to that period, um, including interviews with Ben Kingsley and Ray Fiennes and Liam Neeson. So, and that that was one of the highlights for me was seeing how what I think is his best film was made. It's a beautifully made documentary. It's really sweet for someone who loves his work and has been so greatly influenced by his work. Uh, I found it a really moving documentary. So I recommend that on top of all the films that Chris has had to go through in the last six months. All right, Chris, let's wrap this up. What have you got for us this week? Well, there's been some cheating over the years. The years of this podcast. <laughs> the lying. eons. The there's yes. been some whoring around. The half podcast. <laughs> We've had one film. We've had not films. We've had two films at a time. We've had three films at a time. Fuck it. I'm recommending 31 films, a.k.a. the entire filmography of Steven Spielberg. Partially this is a cry for help because I need to not speak about these films for a while, but also watch them in chronological order. Be a fucking nerd without a life and watch all 31 of these films in order that they were released. Yeah, you've got a spare six months. If you've got a spare six months where you really should be doing other things, and I mean really... Oh, man. But just dedicate some time, knock out an entire filmmaker, or do it with another one. Take a filmmaker, do them in chronological order. I'm not making sense anymore because I just spent six months watching every film that Steven Spielberg made as well as the documentary about Spielberg and a lot of additional information is inside of my head. So that's my recommendation. Please help me. That is wild and uncontrolled, and I really don't know how I feel about that. But anyway... And that's the title of my memoir. 
And I thought the title of your autobiography was going to be Fuck You All. But anyway. Part two. The I'm going to have a lot to write about you guys. <laughs> wow, this is just the switch years? Wow. Shout out to yeah, fuck you all, the switch years. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were some great suggestions in that mix. And you can find the links to all the articles we've talked about on this week's podcast at maketheswitch.com.au. Please subscribe to Switchcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to rate us and stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess? I'm at Miss Jess underscore switch. Daniel. At Daniel Lamon. And Chris. At Chris C. Edwards. Like it? Follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Make the Switch AU to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we discussed on this week's podcast, as well as other episodes by visiting switchcast.com.au. On next week's show, we'll have our verdict on the highly anticipated A Quiet Place and check out the wilderness drama Walking Out. Plus, I'll be checking out the Thai elephant tail Popeye. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next week.